Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Okay, good. I, uh, I understand that there was a time change. And is there anything better than on time change Sunday to wake up for that nice sprinkling of uh, snow? Like, like spring is around the corner. We know that. I'm going to have you grab your Bibles, turn to John 6. There's ushers coming down the rows. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. They'll get a Bible into your hand. Uh, over the last couple months, I've been teaching a class on end times, the return of Christ on Tuesday nights. And this is a subject that I've taught on before. It's interesting, every time I teach on the return of Christ, and, and the Bible has a lot to say about Christ's second coming. It gives us many different things to look for. Every time I study it, there's a couple verses that kind of haunt me as I go through the study, as I'm teaching people. In the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he goes through, he says, hey, these are things that you're going to see before my return. He goes, false Christ will arise. And you're going to hear of wars and you're going to hear of rumors of wars and there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be famines. Don't be shaken. These things are not the end. And then he says that there's going to be persecution and tribulation on account of my name, it's going to be the persecution of believers because of their faith. And then in Matthew 24, 11, and I'll put this on the screen, he says this, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So, so the question, the, the haunting part of these verses is, how many is many? How many is most? That doesn't sound like a couple, does it? It doesn't sound like a few. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying many, or when he says most, I start to think that's more than half. So if this church was indicative of many or most, if we split it down the middle, does that mean everybody on this side? The balcony people, they're gone. We know they've, they're gone, right? But, but it's more than half. And then you see that phrase, but the one who endures till the end, he will be saved. Now, I preach for different reasons. A couple weeks ago when I last preached, I was preaching to give instruction. Sometimes it's instruction from God's word. Sometimes it's encouragement. That's next week. Warning. Tonight, today is a warning. We're going to be looking at a text in John 6 where a lot of people go to a great effort to get to Jesus, and then once they get to Jesus, they turn around and walk away. What makes people leave? What makes them not endure till the end? That verse in Matthew, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, I'm not surprised the Bible warns us that when tribulation and, per and persecution come, many will fall away. We read in Jesus' first parable in Matthew 13, he's talking about soils. And in the explanation of the soils, he's explaining the rocky soil. Matthew 13, 20, he says, What was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. Get this, he doesn't endure the end, but he endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. I think in my 12 years as a pastor, I'm not surprised when people leave because of persecution and tribulation. But the truth is, looking back over 12 years, there have been a lot of people who have left, not this church, not, 
they got mad because we required masks or something went haywire during COVID. Not that. They, they didn't leave our church and start going to another church. They walked away from the faith. They, they were following Jesus. I saw them accept Jesus. I saw their life transformed. I saw marriages restored. I saw young people come up through our system, through our children's ministry, into our high school ministry, into the 20s, and then they're gone. And you say, well, what happened? Well, they're agnostic. They've left the faith. Why do people leave? And what you'll see in John 6, it's a long chapter, it's 70 plus verses, but at the start of John 6, Cal taught about this last week, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he is at the apex of his popularity. He is at the peak of his popularity. The people want to make him king. And 71 verses later, most of those people have left Jesus. We're going to go through these same verses in two different weeks. I'm going to be back in this passage next week, week looking at Jesus' response and how to stay encouraged as a follower of Christ. This morning's very simple. Why do people fall away? If you're keeping notes, here's the first one. They follow the crowd. Look at verse 22 of John 6. Why people fall away? Number one, they follow the crowd. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, that's where Jesus had uh, fed the 5,000, saw that there had been only one boat there, but Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. But his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. It's very interesting the way John constructs his gospel. So far in the, in the gospel of John, we've seen a lot of personal encounters. Jesus, individual, one-on-one -on -one conversations. John gives us Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Then he talks to a woman at the well in John 4, a Samaritan woman. Then he's dealing with a rich official. And then he's dealing with a poor man waiting to be healed by the pool of Bethsaida. So individual conversations, now it's different. Now it's the crowd that remained. It's the crowd that saw that Jesus was not there. Beware of the crowd. It's interesting, when we started the church, uh, we planted the church in 2010. We were about two years old. We had the opportunity to acquire this building. Up until now, we were work meeting in Norton Shores uh, in a warehouse our church was about 250, 300 people. And in the year that we were renovating this facility, our attendance jumped from about 300 to about 700. We nearly doubled in a year. And then 10 years ago at Easter in 2013, we moved into this facility. And we went from 700 people in weekly attendance to 1,400 people overnight. A crowd showed up. We looked around and we're like, we're probably going to need more than four staff. We got to get more donuts. Like there were some critical <laughs> issues that we had to address. You know, it was interesting. As, as we watched the people roll in, there were a lot of different reasons why people showed up that first Sunday that we met in this building. 
Some of them were here just well-wishers. They liked the story of the cross going back up on the building. They wanted to wish us well. Others were from the church that had been here in prior years, be that C3 or First Reformed of Spring Lake, and they wanted to see if we were going to go back to some of those same traditions. A lot of reasons why people come to church. There's a lot of reasons why people are here this morning. Some of you, this is just kind of what you do on Sundays. It's part of your routine. Others, it's kind of like penance. We're not Catholic, so we don't go to confession. But we feel way better about ourselves if we attend church on Sunday mornings. It just kind of makes us feel better about ourselves. Others come to keep the family peace. I don't want to deal with my wife. I don't want to deal with my husband the rest of the week. They're going to nag me. If I don't go, it's easier to just give the hour and a half be done. Others sometimes come because they're looking for friendship. When we started the church and began to grow, we had people come because they wanted platform. They saw this as an opportunity for them to get their message out. We had other people come because they wanted to help their business. They wanted to be mixing with more people on a Sunday. There's a myriad of reasons why people come to church, people come to Jesus. Beware the crowd. The crowd is seldom right. The crowd seldom endures. It's interesting, this last week I was reading on the website Christian Post, they were covering a new survey that was released at the beginning of this week. It's called the American Worldview Inventory. It was performed by a group called the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University. The lead researcher on this report was a guy by the name of George Barna. And, and what the research revealed, what the headline kind of said that caught my attention was this American Worldview Inventory found that the vast majority of Americans, now when I say vast majority, 96% of Americans do not hold to a biblical worldview. 96%. Tara, as she was leading worships, he said, we find ourselves in a culture that is more and more opposed to a biblical worldview. That's absolutely true. 96%. If you hold to a biblical worldview, you're in a very minor minority, 4%. The survey defined a biblical worldview, and I quote, it says, one in which the entirety of a person's ideas about all dimensions of life and eternity are based on biblical principles and commands. So, so a biblical worldview means, just simply stated, you say, what does the Bible say about this? The, the Bible is my source of truth. When I have to make difficult decisions, what does the Bible say? 4% of our culture embraces that. But it gets worse. It says, the study also found the pandemic fueled a decline in biblical worldview, even among those who identify as born-again Christians. So they're saying, over the last three years, they did this survey before the pandemic, they've done it after, and they've seen a marked decline in Christians that hold to a biblical worldview, or people who identify themselves as Christians. That number has gone from 19 to 13%. So, so what the survey just said is, there's been a decline from 19 to 13%. Only 13% of people who identify themselves as followers of Jesus hold a biblical worldview. They follow what his word says. That's terrifying. That's the crowd of evangelical Christianity out there. Yeah, we don't mind going to church. We, we kind of like the worship music. We like the friendships. We'll join the small groups, whatever that looks like. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove... The Bible's not our authority. That's not how we live. Just because someone says they're a Christian and they're giving you counsel doesn't mean that it's biblical counsel. You've got to get to Jesus on your own. 
Don't just follow the crowd. Here's the second thing I see in the text. People leave because they focus on earthly benefits. Now, we've been pounding this point ever since we started this series on John. And the reason we've been pounding this point is because John pounds this point through the first six chapters of his book. It goes all the way back to the first book of his gospel. Or first verse in his gospel. He says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John is making an argument from that first opening verse. The Greek philosophers in John's day believed that there was something that made the universe make sense. A a, a philosophical construct, something that you couldn't put your hands on, but there was an order to the universe, to the cosmos, a rationale. They, They called it the logos. And John starts his gospel with a declarative statement. This logos, this center to the universe, this thing that makes everything make sense, it's not some philosophical construct. It's not something out there that we can't know. It's a person, and his name is Jesus, and Jesus is God. This is his argument from his opening verse. Three weeks ago, I I preached a message, and my big idea was Jesus isn't the means, or he's, he's not supposed to be the means to an end. He is the end. He's the thing that we need to be going after. If you were here last week, Cal was preaching and pounding the same point. Do you remember he gave an analogy? He said, any of you guys have friends that every time they call you or text you, you're like, oh no, not him again. Because every time they call you, all they want is something. They don't really want relationship with you. They want you to do something for them. They want to borrow your stuff. Be careful of approaching Jesus because you want more what he can do for you. Verse 25, when this crowd, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to Jesus, Rabbi, where'd you come from? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So if I can just break that down for you, here's what Jesus said. You didn't come to find me because of me. You came to find me because you wanted lunch again. You, you want to be fed again. It's interesting, four weeks ago, or three weeks ago when I taught, I, I looked at the four personal interactions that Jesus had with four different people, and I put them on a chart or on a grid. There, there, there's opposites in the people that he meets with. There's Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. He's a well-respected member of the community. And then next, Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman. She is worldly. She is an outcast. In Jesus' next two encounters, he meets with a rich official. He is powerful. He is well-connected. And his next interaction is with a a, a man who's been lame for 30-some years. He's sitting by a pool. He's poor. He's helpless. He's waiting to be healed. And, and, And I said, if you look at it this way, if you put it in a grid, it creates quadrants. And and we can all kind of identify ourselves in a quadrant. The upper left quadrant would be religious people who have some level of success, some level of wealth. The upper right-hand quadrant would be more people who have some level of wealth or some level of success, but they've tried to satisfy and fill the void in their heart with worldly pursuits. The bottom right quadrant would be people who are struggling. They don't have a lot of resources, and, and they've got regrets. They've, they've made decisions in life. They've pursued some things very opposite of God's word. And then the lower left being people who lack resources but are godly. 
And it's interesting, too often we look and we try to place ourselves in one of these quadrants, and many people come to Jesus, and the goal of the relationship with Jesus is he would make their quadrant more tolerable or perhaps move them to a different quadrant. And it's interesting, the most uh, desirable quadrant is the upper left, to have some level of power, some level of respect, some level of influence, and some level of wealth. A few observations. Most of us find ourselves in a quadrant. We don't put ourselves there. So, so for me, I said three weeks ago, I'm in the upper left quadrant. I was raised to Christian parents. I was raised in a Christian home, which meant I went to Christian schools. I tend to be more religious than less religious because of my family. And then when I got married, I married into a wealthy family, and I've spent most of my life managing wealth that I didn't create. I didn't put myself there. It's where I find myself, upper left. Oh, by the way, most of you are in the upper left quadrant. You're like, no, I'm not. I'm on the lower part of the graph. I, I, I don't have resources. I don't have a ton of wealth. Historically, or on a world perspective, nearly everyone in this room is wealthy. Nearly everyone in this room has conveniences that the world has not known for long periods of time. Most of us would find ourselves in the upper left. Most of you are more religious than worldly. And you say, how do you know that? Because you're in church on Time Change Sunday at the 9 a.m. I'm not going to be able to say this at the 11. You guys, you're, you're more religious, okay? So, so we find ourselves in the upper quadrant. Most of us not because we put ourselves there. We just found ourselves there. Another observation, Jesus didn't like to hang out with the people in the upper left quadrant. You ever notice that? He's always arguing with the religious elite. He's having a difficult conversation with a rich young ruler. The people in the upper left are like, Jesus, why aren't you hanging out with us? Why are you always hanging up out with the people in the lower right, the, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors? Jesus doesn't seem to want to hang out with us. Another observation the people in the upper left quadrant usually project a happiness that they don't actually experience internally. Many of them are more miserable than they'd like to admit. Let me just quote to you from some of the great industrialists of our country, John D. Rockefeller. I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness I would barter them all for the days that I sat on an office stool in Cleveland and counted myself rich on $3 a week. Cornelius Vanderbilt, he said, the care of millions is too great a load. There's no pleasure in it. Another industrialist, John Astor, I'm the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford, I was happier as a boy working in a mechanic's shop. Why is it that the people who should have arrived are in the quadrant that everyone wants to be in? Why do the extremes of that find themselves more miserable? And oh, by the way... The younger you get there, the younger you taste some level of success, some level of fame, some level of wealth, the more miserable you tend to be. Have you ever noticed that? My proof on that, has anybody seen Johnny Depp lately? Tiger Woods back in the news this week, not going great. See it over and over. Look for it. It's all around us. A preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon said it this way. You say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you're not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. A, 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 a very worldly philosopher by the name of Frederick Nietzsche said it this way. He said, possessions are usually diminished by possession. 
Cal last week warned us. He said, there's three indicators that we want Jesus' stuff more than Jesus. He said this. He said, my pursuit of Jesus is reactive rather than proactive. I find myself angry at God for what he hasn't done, hasn't given me. And my agenda and my timing take priority. False disciples, those who will leave, look at Jesus as the dispenser of good things, not the good thing to be pursued. And they're spending all their time trying to figure out what is the mechanism to get Jesus to give us the things that we think we want that will make us happy. Why people leave, they follow the crowd, they focus on earthly benefits. Here's a third thing, they're exhausted by works. Jesus says in verse 27 of John 6, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. The crowd said to him, What must we do do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the works of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. See, that's the lie of all religions. What must I do for God to accept me? Do I have to pray seven times a day facing Mecca? Is that what I have to do? Do, do, do I have to fast in certain seasons? Do I have to do a two-year missionary trip? Do I have to wear secret special undergarments? What's the key? Do I have to attend church on Sunday? Do I have to join a small group? Do I... what? Do I have to tithe? Like, 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 what are the things? Just give me the things that I have to do in order to make God happy. So many Christians struggle with the idea of grace. It's interesting. The people are saying, what must we do to do the works of God? Do you see what the text says? He says, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I am the great work of God. It's not about your works. It's about me. God sent me to reveal himself to sinners. God sent me to do the work that will free you from the bondage of your sin and the wrath of God. So many Christians struggle to believe in the free gift of grace that is offered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So let me try to illustrate it this way. So, Jay, let's say that you and your wife um, were hanging out. You guys say, hey, why don't you guys come over for dinner? And and, and you spend like all day, you're going to put on a really nice spread for Kristen and I when we come over. So you make my favorite food. Um, That's ribs. Slow-cooked. Okay, um, sauce on the side, just, just so y'all know, okay? And, and, and so you work all night on dinner. You make a wonderful dessert. You make some sort of pie or something. And um, at the end of the, you know, we have a great time. We have a great conversation. We go to leave, and we're like, okay, Jay, how much do I owe you? <laughs> like, like, like I, I want to pay for my meal. And you're like, no, 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 no. We wanted to do this for you. And I said, no, 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 I'm not taking a free meal. Like, it, like what does it cost? Like, break it down. How much were the ribs? How much was the sauce? Let's figure it out. How long would it take you to get offended? There'd come a point you'd say, like, that wasn't the point of this. Our goal was to give you a meal that you could enjoy. We don't expect to be paid. 
So many Christians carry around the guilt and shame of their sin, their past decisions, or their current situation because they fail to recognize that salvation is a free gift and the food that endures to eternal life, it's given to them. It's not earned. Working for your salvation, religious systems, it's exhausting. So why people leave? They follow the crowd. They focus on earthly benefits. They're exhausted by works. Here's one, number four. They forget what God has done. Verse 30, look for, the, look for the change. They said to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread for heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say unto you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Do you see the shift that just happened? The people approach Jesus and they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, it's not about your works. God gives you the bread that endures to eternal life. It is given to you. So they're like, okay, great, it's not our works. Then what will you do? If it's not something we have to do, then we need you to do more. And here's a suggestion. Lunch yesterday, it was awesome. But back in the Old Testament, Moses gave them food every day. So lunch yesterday was great. We've come across. We're approaching you. We've been seeking you. Why don't you provide our needs every day going forward? See, see, Jesus did a great work. He gave a great sign. And the people go, well, now we want you to do more. They forget what God's already done. And let me just say this. If I can just be transparent for a moment. One of the things as a pastor that has really surprised me, one of the, one of the difficult things, I'm always surprised when someone comes to Christ, we're, we're there when they give their life to Christ. Usually they've come to church out of some crisis. Maybe there's a marriage crisis, maybe there's a financial crisis, maybe there's a relational problem, and they, and they come to Christ, they give their life to Christ, we see them receive it with joy, they begin to grow, they begin to plug in, their life is changing. We've seen God restore marriages, relationships with kids, so many different things and then they're gone. And we're like, did you forget how God changed you? Do you forget how he changed your relationship with your spouse? Like, like, why would you go back to the old ways when you've already experienced this transformation? Seriously, you're going to start drinking again? How'd that go for you last time? Really? Your career's now going to go to the forefront. That's the thing that's going to make you happy, that's going to take your priority. Wasn't that the very thing that you were pursuing when you were in crisis, when you came to Christ in the first place because it didn't satisfy? Like, like how quickly people forget what God has already done. And, and I want to look at them and I want to ask, where did Jesus fail you? Did he prove just to be a cruddy friend? Did he lie to you? Did he fail to love you and be there for you in your worst moments? Did he leave you and forsake you? Like, like how in the world did you forget everything that God has done for you to walk back into those patterns that have already left you so broken? I don't get it. 
And the truth is, if I were to have that conversation with many of those people, they would say, yeah, Jesus has been a cruddy friend. Because he didn't give me what I thought he was going to give me, and he put me in circumstances that I didn't expect as a follower of him that I'd ever walk into. And I want to go check your heart. You just revealed it. You didn't come to Jesus for Jesus. You came to Jesus for his stuff, what he would give you, and what he would keep you from. People so quickly forget what God has done for them. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's a fifth one. They grumble. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. Verse 52, the Jews disputed amongst themselves. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus knowing, in verse 61, but Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. So, so before people leave, you start to see a pattern. They start to grumble and they start to complain. The, the internal frustrations that they're feeling because Jesus hasn't given them the stuff that they thought would make them happy, all of that frustration becomes, begins to spill out their mouths. And they grumble and they complain. They complain about the church. They complain about the hypocrites that Christians are. They, they, they grumble and complain. Seldom do they leave quietly. They cause division. They disparage. They grumble. Then here's the sixth thing. They leave. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They, they just walk away. They leave. And, and, and please hear me. In the text, there's a finality there. These are people that are going to leave Jesus, and they're not coming back. Temporary converts, those who endured for a little while, they didn't endure till the end. Much is said about this type of follower, the temporary follower, the casual Christian, the one who doesn't endure. It's spoken about throughout Scripture. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay, must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? See, there's some that will come to a crossroads. Jesus will say some hard things, and they'll choose to walk away. That happens for sure. They refuse to yield. Jesus is not going to be king. It was C.S. Lewis who said, the most easy path to hell is the casual slope. No road signs. Just a casual, slow drift. The pursuits of this world Matthew 13 calls it the deceitfulness of riches or the cares of this world. They, they choke the word and we drift. Twice in Hebrews chapter 3, you read these same words. Verse 7, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Verse 15, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Persecution, trials, cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, all of these cause people to drift away. In chapter 6, a multitude, a crowd, pursues Jesus across the sea. They're seeking him. Yeah, but he has some difficult things to say sometimes. They turn around, they go home. 
they leave, and it's, it's tragic. Okay, three things why people stay. Look at verse 67. Just we're going to be in verses 67 to 69. These points come at you quickly in the text. Verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, so Jesus turns to his 12 disciples. All of these disciples, all these other followers have left. He goes, do you want to go away as well? You can sense the discouragement of Jesus in those words. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One from God. So, so three things, those who stay, the first thing they do is they consider their options. Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, if you're going to walk away from Jesus, if you're going to walk away from the faith, can I just ask you a couple questions? Where are you going to find a better friend? Where else in this universe are you going to go where you're going to experience the unconditional love that Jesus affords us, where we are fully known? He knows all of our thoughts, all of our actions, and yet says that we are fully loved. Where are you going to find that? You're going to go into atheism? You're going to deny the existence of God? You're going to follow that philosophical train wreck that there's no meaning to life, that there's no purpose to life, there's no afterlife, that all of this is meaningless? Hey, enjoy that choice past the Xanax. It's awful. Are you going to go back into a religious system where you've got to do enough to, to the point where you believe that now you merit God's favor? Like, like that's going to be your choice? It's going to be exhausting. How are you ever going to know if you've done enough? How are you going to know when you've arrived? And the problem with that is we know ourselves too well. You're going to follow a religious system? Where else are you going to go? Peter looks at a discouraged Jesus. Are you guys going to leave too? And he looks at them. He goes, there's no other alternative. There's nothing else like you. Second thing I see in the text they decide, they make a choice. Who is Jesus? Peter says, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One from God. Every person in this room, not this church collectively, not the crowd. Every person in this room has to decide what you're going to do with the claims of Jesus. What you're going to have to do with the Old Testament fulfilled prophecies by Jesus, that he was the Messiah of the Old Testament. You've got to decide what you're going to do with the historical fact of the empty tomb. You've got to decide what you're going to do with the spread of Christianity throughout the 2,000 years from some guy who grew up in remote Nazareth. We've got about 100 people from our church right now in Galilee, up in Nazareth. And one of the things that is going to be a takeaway from them on the trip is this is a nondescript area. It's in the middle of nowhere. And yet Jesus Christ insignificant family, insignificant person, change the course of human history. How are you going to explain that? And once you solve that, then deal with some of the individuals in this room who will say 2,000 years later, Jesus has completely transformed my life. He's given me a joy that I didn't know that I could experience. See, Peter looks and he goes, where else am I to go? Because we've come to believe, we know that you are God. Those are the disciples that stay. And then here's a third thing. They focus on eternity. Peter looks to Jesus and he says, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Please hear me. At the end of the day, Jesus didn't come 
so that you could have a better current quadrant or, or, or current construct. He didn't come to put you in a better quadrant of life. That wasn't his purpose in coming. Jesus came to secure your eternity, to forgive you of your sins, to reunite you with a holy God, to pay the sacrifice and bear God's wrath in your place so that you wouldn't have to suffer through all of eternity. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, I consider the, the light momentary afflictions, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if you're keeping notes, here's the big question. When your faith is at the crossroads, what determines your next move? When you come to that crossroads, am I going to continue to follow Jesus or am I going to walk away? Am I going to continue to value him above all things or, or is something else now going to be my primary pursuit? What determines the outcome? What determines your choice? And the answer to that, quite honestly, is really easy. At that moment, when you come to the crossroads, like the crowd did, while Jesus is saying some hard things, we're at a crossroads, what are we going to do? They left. Because certain things were more precious to them than Jesus. What will you do when you come to the crossroads? It will reveal in your heart what you treasure the most. Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man finds it, covers it up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Second parable, another verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. False disciple, the temporary follower, the person that is just part of the crowd. They've come to Jesus to get what they think will make them happy. And when they don't get it, they will walk away. The true follower of Jesus realizes that the relationship with him is the treasure to be pursued and their faith will endure. The question, and I can't decide for you, which are you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, such clear instruction from your word. And though this morning was a warning, it's an appropriate warning when we see a culture in decline, when we see the majority turn their backs on you, we are in a position where we need to decide for me, for my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Father, give us the courage to make unpopular, difficult choices. Teach us to value you as the treasure to be pursued. May you be our everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray.